Here we go. This is the Friday Q&A, and we call it 20 questions. And I'm Pastor Mike Winger here from Southern California, ready to answer your questions about Jesus, God, the Bible, Christianity, gummy bears, and whatever else earth-shaking important issues there are to talk about. Let's go to question number one. This is from Michael, Savannah, and Melanie. And they ask, uh, Hi, Pastor Mike. Greetings from Switzerland. It was re it has recently been scientifically proven that many psychopaths have a physical brain alteration that doesn't allow their synapses to receive the neuron chemicals for emotions such as sympathy. Oftentimes, they become violent criminals or even murderers now, here's the question on all that. Will they be judged by God the same as any other person, even though they have something physiologically wrong with them? And um, boy, uh, th this is a question that I think is, in a sense, is easy to answer. I'm going to give you my easy answer up front, and then I want to explain some pitfalls of, of, of that potential answer, like things that I, I see people making mistakes on, at least I think are mistakes, that I want us to be aware of and not fall into. So the uh, the simple answer is, um, I don't think God would judge them the same. I think that, uh, or, or in a, let me put it this way. <laughs> let me make it more complicated. He will judge them the same, which is perfectly fairly. He judges everyone differently in a sense, I believe. Um, so each person, God is aware not only of what they did right, what they did wrong. He's aware of what they knew, what they didn't know, what opportunities they did have, what opportunities they didn't have, the situation they were in when they did those things right or wrong. He's aware of all of those things. God judges us perfectly fairly with all the information. He considers every factor. And so will he consider a physiological problem that somebody has? I think absolutely yes. Okay, to me that, that, that seems like it adjusts the way they're judged somewhat. Now the pitfalls, which I don't think you guys are falling into because you're, you you worded your question pretty carefully here, but the pitfalls that I would want to avoid others from falling into is thinking that this is like some sort of like clumsy excuse for sinful behavior. Um, hey, God judges us differently. And then in the back of their head, what they're kind of thinking is, oh, so I don't get judged if I have like a physiological problem that that lends me towards sin that pushes me or makes it easier to sin or something like that and and for that i'm going to push back really hard and say oh no 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 that is not biblical at all uh jesus even says that like the one who sinned without knowing will be beaten with few stripes the one who sinned with knowing beaten with many stripes what does that imply it implies that there's a different a measured judgment for those who sin with less knowledge such as less sympathy but that doesn't mean that they're not judged for the sins they commit because they're still committing sins. They're still doing things that are wrong. Now, I'm going to add some more things onto this. I hope that that helps keep us from that really bad pitfall of thinking that we will not have these uh, judgment for our, our sins because we have some tendency in us. I mean, that would backfire so fast on everything in Christian theology. Um, like that, It almost comes down to saying, well, I have sin nature, so God won't try to punish me for my sin. And that's the danger I'm, I'm worried about people falling into. Um, other dangers are things like um, real, you know, forgetting that just because somebody may lack sympathy, and I'm just granting that they do. Okay, I'm not going to argue on that. It's it's over my head as far as the science goes. But let's just grant that they're lacking sympathy and they lack the ability to have an emotional sympathy. It, from what I've read on this, which is very little, the psychopath does not lack the ability to recognize the situation for what it is. That is, they, they A, they understand that what they're doing has a moral 
problem with it, right? They understand that it's there's moral problems. Hey, that's actually wrong. Um, even if they aren't feeling the guilt and feeling the sympathy and stuff like that. And two, they're able to look at somebody and and be aware that they're hurting them, they're injuring them, they're causing them harm, they're causing them pain. Where you're, you know, the the research that I've little bit that I looked at was suggesting if they're right that the psychopath simply doesn't you know, feel the person's pain, so to speak. They don't look at them and go, oh boy, that hurts. Um, but even that, the little bit of research I looked into was was a lot more diverse and it it, it didn't fit a real simplistic kind of like um, cop show version of psychopaths. <laughs> that didn't really quite fit. So I'll, I'll also add a few other things here. Um, before I go to the next question, tackling 20 questions today, even if it takes uh, a little bit of time to do it. And the next thing is this is I want us to be aware that in in the study of psychology and in the study of like behavioral therapy and all these different sciences about human nature, about the way humans are and they operate, you know, sociology, they they have two sort of tools in their tool bag for assessing why people act the way they do. And the tools generally the, the way I've seen it are nature and nurture, nature and nurture. Right. So you've got nature like the way you're wired, the way your DNA is, the way you know, the brain chemistry is functioning for you. And they have nurture, which is going to be, oh, the way you were raised, the environment you in, uh, you know, there's things internal to you is, is DNA and nature. External to you is the way that you are um, raised in an environment. And they will often speak as though they're assuming these are the only two factors involved in the development of a person and their personality and their behaviors. The problem with this from a Christian worldview is not that it's totally wrong. It's that it it only has two of three important factors. And the third one is the most important one. And that is free will. That is human choice. So if I uh, have a rebellious child and I go, okay, well, maybe his brain is making him rebellious. Okay, that would, maybe that's a nature thing. Okay, well, maybe it's his environment, the way his family's raising him that's making him rebellious. That's a, a nurture thing. But, but also somewhere in there, he's making decisions. So I, I want to factor in nature and nurture, but I don't want to exclude free will. This, the psychopath would have a free will choice to commit the sins he's committing. And he is therefore culpable, even if there are external and internal factors that make it more likely for him like to fall into that kind of stuff. So free will means when you commit a murder, you're not off the hook because you didn't feel emotionally the way most people do about murder. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, that doesn't work. And the last thing I'll say is this, is that the way that the Bible describes societies that, 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 that trend towards wickedness and sin, a lot of the descriptions, lovers of self, right? They, they care about themselves, but not others. That's like a narcissistic type viewpoint, which is, I think, common for a psychopath. Um, those are described as not neurological conditions that someone is suffering with, but rather the behavior of I love me, not you. That's the issue. That's what we focus on. So the free will thing becomes the emphasis, the, and yeah, I, I, yeah, there's other stuff that could be said about that, but I hope that that helps. Look, yeah, it, it would be measured in judgment as will everything else, but that doesn't mean we're off the hook. That's the important part. We make our choices before God. I've made my choices. And I, even if my upbringing lent me towards sinful behaviors of a certain kind. Um, oh my goodness. Like I've seen this growing up. I've seen people do this where they're like, yeah, I'm not a good father. I'm not very loving to my kids, but it's not my fault because my father wasn't good and loving to me. And, and what does their kids say when they grow up? I know I'm not a good father, but my dad wasn't loving to me. 
And then they grow up. I know I'm not a good dad, but my dad wasn't loving to me. And it's like, we can't keep playing this game. We are each responsible for our choices. Number two, this is Samuel Carvalho who says, if one were to pray over someone for a miracle slash healing, what would the chances of it working depend on? <laughs> what an interesting question, Samuel. Jesus said that it depends on faith. Does it also depend on being relatively righteous as a person? Okay. Um, so it's almost like uh, uh, analyzing the formula for uh, for achieving a successful yes answer while you're praying for a miracle. That's kind of what we're looking at here. And so you could, we, we, we let's, let's kind of like, let's try to grant this experiment that we could analyze it like a formula. Um, so obviously faith is very important that there's faith is involved. This is clear in the, in the, in the uh, new Testament in particular, in the gospels, Jesus continually is like, Hey, you know, all things are possible for him who believes, you know, ask him my name. If you believe you'll receive all those types of things. So faith is definitely a factor. Um, another one you mentioned is, is being righteous. Now that's a challenge to, to address because we have examples, um, going sort of both ways in scripture. There's examples of like people who are not godly. They're not like the only thing they have is, is faith. All they offer is faith. And then their prayers are answered. And then we have examples of very godly, very people we would look very much up to as their righteous examples. And, but even there, a mixed bag because you get guys like Saul, Paul, right? The apostle who had many mighty miracles going through his life. But when he talked about his apostolic ministry and the miracles and all that stuff, he called it God's grace to him. So clearly he's not thinking he's earning a miracle. So I'm going to, I'm going to suggest that, um, that righteousness is not like a qualifier for earning a miracle. Although I would, based on my understanding of scripture, I would dial that back a little bit with some nuance and say, but if there's sin in a person's life, that might be the cause of problems. So righteousness doesn't earn miracles, but sin does cause problems. And Israel, when they sin and then they're punished as a result, um, or uh, in 1 Corinthians, when Paul talks about many of them falling asleep because of the lack of love that they're showing to one another, there's an implication here that sin can be a cause of, of issues, physical issues, spiritual issues, and even perhaps a cause of unanswered prayer. I, th I say perhaps, but I think that this is, this is, this is in scripture, this is taught, but that isn't to say, um, that the solution is I live perfectly righteously and then God answers my prayers because I don't think that's it. I think that sin is me. Let me put it in more modern terms. Sin is me walking away from God. And so that prayer connection is, is, is messed up, but I don't get my way back to God through righteousness. I, I just, I just repent and trust in Christ for his, his grace and his love and his kindness. So I'm not earning the answers to prayers. That's the idea. I'm not earning miracles. Uh, that's the danger of speaking of righteousness there. The other issue though, that we haven't added is the issue of God's will. And this is the big, like, this is the wild card that gets thrown in that destroys all prayer formula <laughs> because if it's God's will to heal, if it's not God's will to heal, this has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with what your situation is or what you're thinking about it or what you're aware of at the time. Like if it's God's will to heal for whatever purposes he has, that's, that's a necessary element. Okay. So faith is necessary. I think that not actively being in rebellion against God, that's really important. Um, although it's not that your righteousness is earning a yes answer, but God's will is like the ultimate thing. And we see this in the gospels as well. In, in my study through the gospel of Mark, I think this came out 
big time, at least to me as I was studying and teaching it. And that is that Jesus is like healing, healing, miracle, raise the dead, cast out the demons, heal the sick, the lepers and all this stuff. And it's just everything's possible. Everything's possible. And then we get to the garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is like to, to the, the son, God, the son says to the father, you know, if this is, if there's any other way, let this cut past from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. See, there's, there's no lack of God's ability to save the son, the father to save the son from the cross. There's no lack in ability there. What's, what's the lack? The lack is it's not ultimately part of God's will. Right, so the the father's like I've sent my son, and now the son is submitting and yielding. With this this picture of of the way that the father and son behave right here during the incarnation, in particular, the father is like I'm sending you to the cross. The son is like I don't like this, but I don't enjoy this. Like think of the pain and the suffering it was, but I yield. I'm gonna I'm gonna go forward, and so um, I think that this is a beautiful thing, and it's a great picture for us in our prayer life too. This is the thing that is the hardest pill to swallow. When you're thinking, Lord, I, I have faith. I believe you. And I've been praying for this thing. And there's no like sin that I'm aware of in my life. There's nothing like that would be blocking my, you know, I'm not walking away from you in my, in my, in my life with open sin. So all I do is I look at this, this horribly hard situation and I think you could fix this. You could do this, but you're not. All I can think is that for some reason you don't want to. And then we look to the cross and we say, Jesus on the cross, he was faced with the same situation, put in, the, in, in human form and then walking, walking through it for an example for us to say, look, guys, look to Jesus. There, there was good. There was purpose. There was need for the cross. And it was not perceived by the disciples. They just thought it was all bad news. Christ knew. He knew about the glory that was coming. And he knew about the joy set before him. In the same way, like you might be like the disciples where I don't see why God won't heal my child. I don't see God, why God won't, won't raise this person up. I feel like it would be a perfect testimony of his power and his grace. And all these good things would happen. And this is where you realize that there's faith for miracles, but then there's also faith that simply trusts God's will and trusts God's character. And to me, that's what we really encounter on a very regular basis is, do I just trust that God is good in the midst of the times when he, when his will is not to do the thing that I want him to do? It seems like the most obvious thing until you're in the middle of it, until you're standing there and you're looking at a thing you want God to do and he's not doing it. And you're like, okay, now, now I, I see why this is a challenge. <laughs> When, when you trust God for miracles, but you don't trust God's will, that's when this problem becomes a problem. So we got to trust his goodness, trust his will. Um, so that being said, I don't think there's a formula for prayer because it depends on God's will ultimately. Um, although it does involve faith and it does involve not being in open rebellion against God. Number three, Zaki Zeris says, if our bodies are glorified at the rapture, what happens to those people who are saved post-rapture? Is there a second resurrection? Um, so there's going to be different views on this. It's been a little while since I've looked freshly into this, Jackie. So let me just think for a second. Um, like, just for you guys to know, like in my... <laughs> maybe you'll realize that, that, that some of you go through the same thing as me. Is your mind can only carry so much data. And so uh, the topic of the rapture is something I haven't looked into in a long time. And so it's just not fresh on my mind. Um, just started my prep for the study on women in ministry. It's going to be a long, long prep, weeks, maybe even 
maybe even into months. We'll see. I'm just going to take as long as it takes to teach that thoroughly and thoughtfully. But, uh, but yes, um, I'm trying to remember if, if I've heard someone who's a proponent of the rapture discuss this specifically. If our bodies are glorified at the rapture, what happens to those who are saved post-rapture? Is there a second resurrection? Um, I guess that depends on whether they think those people get like a glorified body shortly after. That's a, that's a good question, Jackie. I'm not sure how they would answer that. Because I, I, what, what's going to happen is you guys are going to think I speak for the pro-rapture position here when the truth is that I'm a little bit on the fence on some of this stuff, a lot of it on the fence. And so I don't want to be seen as like, oh, if Mike doesn't know that answer, then there is no answer there. I just don't remember off the top of my head how they would answer that. Um, if they're, say, post-rapture. Okay. seems like you have two options, right? You either have the the rapture, maybe three options. The rapture, you get your, your, your new body as you're, taken up and you're transformed right so that that would be a rapture with with a resurrection right but then there's going to be those who died during the tribulation they either individually get new bodies after their death or there's a second resurrection experience which would be a strange thing to be teaching to be honest when you look at the text i'll just put it out there <laughs> number four um Oh, by the way, I want to share with you guys something as we go to number four here. The um, Okay, so I never use Bing. This is more just a personal funny thing. I never use Bing. Bing is like the search engine that, um, that I always find to not help me find what I'm looking for online. But somebody who follows our, our ministry, the, the ministry I do online, does use Bing. And they had searched for my name looking probably for the website or something like that. And Bing does this thing. I'll put it on your screen. Hold on. It does this thing where it like autofills. Um, hold on a second, I'll get it for you. Uh, all right, and there it is. It it like autofills. It, it just searches the internet and grabs data about people, and then creates these little things. So this is on the Bing page. This is like what automatically pops up. And this was over a week ago. It's still there today. I just checked for fun, and it says about me, Mike Winger. The description is the atheist geek is a former Jehovah's Witness turned atheist, a long a lifelong sci-fi geek, writer wannabe, and moderate liberal pro-science. And then it has data there that's like not accurate at all. <laughs> I just think it's hilarious. Oh, here I can make it a little bigger for those of you that want to see it. There you go. This is the description right down there at the bottom. Um, so what, what, what this is, is there's apparently there's like an actual atheist who has a Twitter profile called the Atheist Geek and Bing somehow thinks that's me. Uh, it's funny for like 10 different reasons. If I just side note, because I just think this is hilarious. So I'm not a former Jehovah's Witness, but I've actually had multiple Je Jehovah's Witnesses or those who are on the fence or those who are former JWs come up to me, you know, in person to, to, to ask me like, were you a Jehovah's Witness? Because they think I'm just hiding that I was because I've just did a lot of work and I tried to use their internal language when I talked about that religious group and um, as a way of making sure that I got things accurately and, and, and all that. So I've had a number of people ask me if I was a former JW. Um, Sci-fi geek? Sorry, yeah, yeah. Writer want to be moderate liberal. <laughs> moderate liberal. And the irony of pro-science, this pro-science is like, anyway, it, I won't get into it all. Um, my, uh, my thoughts about modern funny atheism. Um, internet atheism that just just no offense to the atheists it's just um, 
Pro science. Okay, so we'll go, we'll go to the next question. This is going to be number four. Um, this is from Nunya Business. Oh, Nunya Business. Nunya Business. My brother has a very biblical worldview, despite being an agnostic in terms of homosexuality and celibacy, etc. Based on science, how do I prove that morality though comes from God? Um, okay, so Nunya Business. All right, so you're, you're dealing with someone who's who's got a pretty consistently biblical perspective on moral issues, right? That's pretty cool. I like that. And other, and, and also then your brother is going to have very strong moral opinions. He, he obviously thinks there's moral truth and there's objective moral truth. So Nanya, I'm going to suggest that you, to start with, that you, you, you consider looking into like, um, uh, potentially C.S. Lewis. Okay. I'm going to give you different tiers. Okay. You think about which tier is best for you and your brother. C.S. Lewis talks about the moral argument. And what I really like about C.S. Lewis is he talks about how the moral argument shows that there is that there is a God. And he does it very thoughtfully, but he also does it like in language that connects with normal people. Not like just like a, no offense, my scholarly friends out there, but not like a scholar who, who has a, have tendencies to talk just... They nuance things so much that nobody knows what they're talking about. And um, C.S. Lewis really connected with people. So if you look up his moral argument, you could look it up in Mere Christianity, this nice little book. Maybe that's a great book to address and bring to your your atheist uh, brother or your agnostic brother, excuse me. So um, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, that'd be a nice thing to, to consider. That'd be like tier one. Okay, that is if he's not like, say, versed in philosophy, deep in those types of discussions. If he's more versed in philosophy stuff... Um, you could look up, uh, there's a number of Christian philosophers who've put forward moral arguments. And one of them is um, uh, William Lane Craig, who's talked about the moral argument. And I like, he's very accessible, his content. Um, another one, I don't know who to recommend on it, but would be someone who's put out what's called the um, the argument from moral knowledge. Okay, these are different arguments. Let me give you guys the lay of the land on a couple of these things, at least as I understand it. The moral argument is first off, it's not this. It's not, you're aware of morality because of Christianity. That is not the argument. This is like um, annoying <laughs> that it always comes up, but we're not suggesting this. Like this is not the moral argument for God's existence, nor is it an argument that because God exists, therefore we should believe in morals. Like because you believe in God, you should believe in morals. That is not the argument either. That is not the argument. We're not saying because God exists, you should believe in morals. Now that would be true, but that's not the point we're making, right? It's true that like peanut butter and honey sandwiches are good, but we're not talking about that right now. <laughs> You've never had one. I'm just saying you let the honey, you just put the honey on the sandwich bread and you let it sit there for like two minutes and it like does this thing, this like magical honey and bread thing. And then, you know, so yeah, but we're not talking about that right now. No, we're moving on. And uh, the argument instead is not so from God to morals, but is from morals to God. That's the argument. So somehow we're talking about the fact that morals exist means that, or the best explanation for that is the fact that God exists. And so C.S. Lewis gives, gives thoughtful stuff on this. And William Lane Craig has a good argument on this. You could just Google him. Don't use Bing. <laughs> and uh, and um the uh, the argument then from morality would be that your brother recognizes that there are moral truths, but how does he explain, and maybe this would be one way you could approach it, how does he explain the fact 
that he, that it not only is wrong, right, to say, um, say homosexuality or something like that or, or something like murder. Take something really, we don't have to debate about, okay, murder, well, except when it's abortion, all of a sudden it's confusing, right? Um, yeah, right. So let's take murder and say everyone agrees murder's wrong, but just the fact that it is wrong, why does that mean I shouldn't do it? This is an interesting question to ask. It's it's what the philosophers call the is-ought problem. Okay, just because murder is wrong, why is it that I ought not do it? Should parents take care of the kids? Yes, they should. Why? Because it's good for parents to take care of their kids. Yes. Okay, just because it's good for them to take care of their kids, why does that mean they have to do it? See, these are things we assume in our worldview, and we should. They should be in our worldview, but we don't think about them. We don't reflect on them. When you start to like nail this down, you realize that like, gosh, if there's no God, it's difficult to figure out why I should do things just because they morally are good. This is not uh, to argue that atheists don't believe in morals or that atheists don't feel like compulsion to do good things or something like that. That Again, that's just a distraction. So that's like the, the is ought problem. You could talk about that. And basically we're going to suggest that moral, moral oughtness it comes from persons. It's a personal quality. And it ultimately is going to come from God, who God, who, who gives us, who is good, right? That establishes what is God's nature being good, gives us a grounding for morals just existing in reality. But then God's commands to us, God's instructions to us, God's expectations of us. These are the things that make it so that we ought to do it. So it's, there's an is and an ought. And now that makes sense on God. I never really hear people rarely argue against that. What's weird is when you take God out of the picture and you look at the world around you, if, if there is no God and you're like, wait, why is it bad to commit murder? Like why actually, if we're just an explosion, not, not that we are and have been, you know, there's an explosion in our history. No, no, but that's all it is. It's just a random event, undirected with no intentionality. Chemicals just happen to collide together in a way that eventually led to human thought. Your consciousness doesn't make sense on on atheism, on the materialistic worldview, your, your, the moral truth doesn't make sense. Where does it come from? Where, where do just, where does like, here's a piece of paper, right? Where does, how does moral truth arise out of this matter? It just doesn't make sense. God makes a lot of sense. Atheism doesn't there. I think that's a one way in which God has wired us to know that he is real. So none of your business. Uh, those are the things I'd recommend. Check those out. And we will go to question number five. No more questions. We've got all 20 loaded up. I'm just going to read through them now. The next one is from Fox.Dude, who says, Paul Washer said that Matthew 7, 13 to 14, is not about Christians and unbelievers, but rather real Christians and Christians who think they're saved. He says many who think they are saved aren't thoughts. Okay, so there's two different things going on here. One of them is a question about this interpretation of Matthew 7. So let's look at this and let's ask the first question. Should we think this is about um, Christians and people who claim to be Christians? Or should we think it's about Christians and non-believers? All right, let's, let's look at the passage. Um, Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And, there, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Um, I'm trying to think of how, I'm sure he has some contextual reason for suggesting 
that that he's okay. Paul Washer is going to say from from okay. I haven't listened to Paul Washer on this. Um, I don't know a lot of his teaching, so I can't comment on that. Let me just say from your characterization of him, Fox dot dude, um, his teaching is that there's two groups of people: one that enters by the narrow gate, and then there's one that enters by uh, the wide gate. Um, and that these two represent are all Christians in name, and some of them are true Christians and some of them are false Christians. Um, I, I'm going to push back on this and just say initially, um, if there's only two categories, one of them leads to salvation, one leads to condemnation. I don't know why I would say the people on this second category, the, the wide path, are named Christians. Why do I add that quality to them? Now, certainly some of them are. Some of them are pretend Christians or they believe they think they are, but there's deception going on. They don't really trust in Christ. They call themselves Christians, but they're not really holding to the true doctrines of Christianity um, or there hasn't been a real true conversion. Certainly some of them are, but why would I say all of them are? Like, is there a reason in the passage to think that? I, I, I don't think so. Uh, not that I'm aware of. Maybe if you read back and you look at the whole Sermon on the Mount, you're going to see that. But I, I don't think you are personally. Um, I think Jesus is, is trying to talk about the urgency. The urgency of making the real and right choice to truly enter ultimately through Christ. Um, that it's not going to be this just simple, easy path. Your, your, and it's true that your cultural Christianity is not going to work. If, if Christianity for you is easy, then maybe it's not Christianity. That, that, that would be a true application of this, right? Because it's a wide, easy way. The narrow gate. I'm going to trust in Christ. I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to take up my cross and follow Jesus. That I recognize that this is a, uh, a, a giving up of one life for the receiving of another. That, that, that is important. So I, I would not isolate that second category to just Christians who are fake. Um, now, you also said, the second thing you mentioned is, he says many who think they're saved are not thoughts. Um, this, let me back up out of Christianity for a second and say this is true universally. Many think that they will be fine when they stand before God on Judgment Day, when in fact they will not. Not just Christians, but human beings. Most human beings will find a way to be the good guy in the end. We will find a way to look at our, this is just my analysis of human nature from my own life experiences. I realize I, I have a tendency to want to affirm myself in the end, no matter what. And I've seen this working with guys that are like in the domestic violence program years ago when I was doing that. Um, they're always the good guy, even when they're the bad guy. It's it's just it's like a human nature thing. It's I I want the catharsis of knowing of thinking that I'm okay in the end. On the other end, there are some who who never ever feel okay. They always they're, they're fearful of judgment to the point of nothing can salve that fear. Not even the cross of Christ, and they don't just trust in Jesus. But but I'm just aware that human nature is such that we we want to say like whatever we are, we're okay in the end. And I'm just driven to want to say that. I want to say that when I die, I'm going to be fine. So if I'm Buddhist, I'm going to convince myself that I'm going to be fine. If I'm, if I'm Catholic, I'm going to be fine. If I'm Muslim, I'm going to be fine. If, if I'm Protestant, I'm going to be fine. So I think that human issue bleeds into Christianity very much. And that what we need to do is think biblically about everything. 
we need to like take scripture and, and like actually let the scary stuff stand in scripture, right? Where, where Jesus says that, you know, why do you call me Lord? But you don't do the things I say. Or he says, I never knew you, right? The, these, these are scary things, but they're real. And they're meant to not to condemn us. They're meant to wake us up that we might really truly put our trust in Christ, that we might be depending not on um, ourselves, but simply and totally on him and his grace and his kindness and his goodness. So, yeah, I would agree that there's a major issue there. And it's human-wide. It's not just in the church. It's, it just bleeds into the church. Um, I Love Wayne's World says, If salvation is a free gift and not by works, then why does Jesus say those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples? How do we know when we have given up everything? Um, let's, let's go to a passage where Christ says this. Um, Luke 9, and let's read it and let's consider it. Um, he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of his Father, of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let me just mention, because this comes up so often, the next thing that happens after Jesus predicts that there's some people alive who will see the kingdom coming is the transfiguration in every gospel. It's always the transfiguration, because I think that was the fulfillment of that. Some people, right? And then all people will see it in the future. Um, okay, so Luke 9. Let's first let me do what some people have been doing on my Facebook page recently. <laughs> and and there, there's, a, there's a YouTube channel. I can't. Uh, Voice in the Desert. Voice of the Desert. Voice in the Desert, I think it's called. Like an you know, Isaiah reference. And um, they've been uh, uh, doing a number of, of videos trying to respond to me, to refute me. Um, I don't give them the time of day to be completely honest, not because I'm better than them or something like that, but because there's no desire or attempt to rightly understand me. It, it, and there's a ton of false teaching in their in their stuff. One of the teachings is, of course, that you're gonna you have to you have to um, give up everything you own in order to be saved. Like this is like a, a salvation requirement to sell all you have in order to be saved. And um, and I, I've I've got teaching going through the Gospel of Mark where we deal with Jesus teaching on this in detail, but let me give you some thoughts today that I hope you will find helpful. Don't just take my word for it. Consider what I'm saying here. Let's grant, hypothetically, that although salvation is, is a gift, somehow you have to do all the stuff that Jesus put on the list literally and fully, okay, in order to be saved. Let's walk through that and see if that's what Jesus wanted us to do with this passage. So. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Okay, what does that mean? Let's start with the first sentence here. I have to deny myself, take up my cross daily, and follow Jesus. So if I'm going to take up my cross, okay, the cross, don't don't be don't don't think it's like a pendant you put on, right? Like the cross here is is like an electric chair in the first century. It, it, it's a it's a device of torture and execution. So if I'm going to take up my cross daily what is what am i what am i getting at here jesus obviously doesn't mean it literally 
there's something metaphorical about the concept of taking up your cross, and Jesus is requiring you to do that. This is the idea of saying, Jesus, my life belongs to you, even if it costs me my death. That's a decision. This is like a wholehearted commitment. If you're going to come after me, you must be fully committed. But if you take it like overly literally, then you literally think you have to get crucified every day or you carry a cross around physically every day. And I've seen people do this every once in a while. There's someone walking around with an actual cross. Um, I don't think that was the point. So, um, yeah, not meant to be taken literally, but seriously, taken seriously. It's not just like, oh, it's a fluffy metaphor. No, it's serious. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. When, what, what does this mean? Like if you save your life, like I took life-saving medicine, oh, now I'm going to die because I have to take Jesus literally. So if I save my life, like by, by feeding myself when I'm starving, I saved my life. No, I can't do that. I have to take Jesus literally. You see the problem with, with interpreting it that way. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Okay, do you get the idea here? This is, this is the real decision Jesus is giving us. You have to decide that you are for his life, for eternal life, and not for this world. And when you're confronted, this is the application, I think. When you're confronted with opportunities to choose between the Christian, Christ-following life and the world, you, under any pain of suffering, choose Christ. And what would be the benefit? Of, of, of gaining the world and losing yourself. What would the point of that be anyways? That's, that's how I take this here. Um, so your question is, is salvation a free gift and not by works if I have to like give everything, like lose everything like this? Um, and the answer is, this is not to earn salvation. This is simply the decision you're making. There's a difference, right? I'm not giving Jesus everything I own to purchase my salvation. I'm realizing that when I choose to follow Christ, I'm choosing to not be part of this world anymore and part of his eternal kingdom forever. And that this world will then become something of um, enemy territory that I'm doing evangelism in to bring more people into the light. I realize I'm stepping into that zone. That, that, that I think is the idea here. It's not giving what I have to purchase something. Jesus also talks about um, selling all you have. Um, and I've talked about this recently as well. You might be thinking of that as well, but this was more isolated. Uh, Jesus doesn't tell every single Christian to sell all they have. I've, I've dealt with this recently a number of times. So you can uh, go to, go to biblethinker.org and, and type in like in the search engine, you can search the Q and a, you could type in like money or something like that, or sell all or something like that. You'll, you search the terms there and you should find exactly the links where I get into more detail there. I hope you understand that distinction though. Um, a cost for following Jesus isn't a cost to purchase salvation. There's just different things. Number seven, Jordan Filar says, where do you draw the line between honest communication about things that bother you about something someone does and dying to self if the person is a very close friend, loved one, spouse? Thanks. Jordan, I don't know if there's an easy way to answer this question. I'll give you some thoughts that I have on it. Um, one is um, Matthew 15. So... One time it's good to talk to somebody, at least in general. <laughs> um, or Matthew 18, sorry, let me find the passage. Yeah, okay, here we go. Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. There's a procedure here in Matthew 18. 
and it's about individual relational issues of sin, right? So go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Now that's, that's one of the keys here is that in this whole process, your goal is to restore relationship, not just to, to voice grievances. A lot of times what we do is we, we, we do open up Jordan to tell somebody about how they've hurt us because we're just so upset that we're just going to tell him. I don't think that's exactly healthy. Um, not that it's always wrong to tell people. I, I mean that, that that motive, that reason, that the trigger being, that's it. I'm so upset. I'm just going to tell you what I think. Like that is not, I think what we're reading here. This is, hey, your sin against me hurt our relationship and it's hurting our relationship. I would like to restore that relationship. So let's see if we can overcome this. I want to talk to you about this. There's a, there's a restoration that's in the heart of it. So where do I draw the line? I, I, I make sure, am I seeking restoration or am I seeking merely to voice grievances? There's, there's an important question. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay, verse 16 and 17 and on is going to reveal that this actually the context of Matthew 18 is not just little nitpicky things. I hate that my husband leaves his laundry on the floor. Like, that is, it's not at that level. Not that that's not annoying or irresponsible for him to do that because it is, but, but it's not at this level. Here, it's a significant enough sin issue that you don't just leave it. You actually go to the, the church, one or two others along with you. Then if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. First Corinthians does this in particular. There's like major sin going on. So um, the, uh, and, and, and there's a, a statement from Paul about like, hey, you need to kick this guy out. He's unrepentant. He's unremorseful. He's living in gross sin. He needs to be asked to leave. He was uh, sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmother maybe. And whoa yeah not gonna happen to the church so um so this this is an extreme sin issue so jordan where do i draw the line between honest communication and things that bother me about something someone does first i want to die to myself and realize that there's a term that's not biblical but it's a helpful term called sandpaper people that sometimes people are they 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 rub you the wrong way because you need to be rubbed down you know you'd be ground down like 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 a piece of wood that's just all you know hard and and unpleasant on one side and and so you're you're being ground down and it's and it's that person who is you know clashing against you in this area that is helping you to grow and mature and become a more godly person um so that's the first question i'd have is is this part of that should i just let that go um but another question is, is this going to cause division between me and them long-term? And if it is, not just because I'm bitter, but but it's just like, this is a relationship damaging thing that keeps going on, then I'm going to address it with them. But after a number of addresses, I'm going to give up. Most likely I am. I'm not going to try to keep fixing things um, that I think are not going to be fixed. And so in a major sin issue, it can cause division, as it does in the Matthew 18 passage. They won't repent. But if it's anything minor anything secondary i'm going to try to to just say lord they're your they're your servant not mine and um yeah yeah that that's pretty much how i do it <laughs> i don't view it as my job to fix everybody um especially for me the awkward thing about being a teacher who teaches online or teaches the bible is um that i don't run around teaching people everywhere i go all the time i'm not like standing 
over people's shoulders like, oh, technically, well, actually, more accurately, like, I just don't do that. Like, this is me serving in, in my ministry right now, but that wouldn't be good for a relationship. So I also recommend not trying to fix every little nitpicky thing about a person is to have some grace on them as well. Um, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Let love be your primary motive, Jordan. Love for God, love for them, and yourself last. And that'll give you some wisdom. Elijah says, are demons the spirits of dead Nephilim? Genesis 6 explains Nephilim are the offspring of women and angels. Demons never materialize. We know angels can. Luke 22.3 is not convincing to me. Elijah, you're um, obviously neck deep in a pretty involved theological debate or issue. Um, so... <clears throat> You say Luke 22.3 is not convincing to you. Let's look at that passage and we'll see how it might relate to what you're talking about here with Nephilim and demons and all that. Uh, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was, one of the, uh, who was of the number of the twelve. So Satan enters into Judas. Okay, I'm not sure what's not convincing there, Elijah. Obviously, in the debate, you, this is a proof text someone uses to make a point that you disagree with. Are demons the spirits of dead Nephilim? Um... I am not convinced that they are, okay? I'm just going to speak as I've not fully vetted all these issues. Here's how I see it. When I look at just the scripture, I don't think that demons are the spirits of dead Nephilim. I think demons are just like Satan's minions, so to speak. They they could just be, they could be these fallen angels. We know that the angels fell, so I, I would maybe lean that way, okay? There's not a lot of details about them given in scripture. Um, so with the available... <laughs> You know, available beings to try to say what are these demons? I'm gonna I'm gonna look at the um, the uh, the fallen angels. That's gonna be my my inclination. Um, somebody might bring up Luke 22:3 to suggest, hey, if Satan can enter Judas Iscariot, then angel we know he's an angel. Then angels can enter or possess, and therefore that gives more credence to the idea that demons are angels since they have that ability too. And that, and that that's quite possible. So. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure that it answers the question fully, but it certainly makes, it leaves the door open for that possibility. Now, just looking at the Bible, I'm thinking that's my conclusion on demons. If you add intertestamental literature, stuff that was written that's not scripture, but gives us a clue as to the historical context of some of the scriptures, right? The background, the historical background of people in the New Testament times. There are those who think, as I understand it, think this about demons. And if, if my memory here is correct, that they're thinking at least some demons are like the spawn of angels and women, then you could say, well, if that's what some people are thinking in the first century, then when in the New Testament, the authors write the word demon, that's what they're thinking too. I'm a little hesitant to do this though. Um, for a few reasons, but one, it hasn't been well established to me that it's that unilateral in in the intertestamental period and during the new testament times that that concept of demons is is so widely held that i should assume it's what's meant in the new testament um i i mean i'm not saying it's not i'm just saying it hasn't been demonstrated yet so i'm not going to absorb that until that time another problem is that um we're adding tons of really detailed teaching about the nature of the spiritual realm and we're getting it from extra biblical sources. And this just seems like a concerning method of getting our theology. So I would hesitate to do that for those reasons, Elijah. Um, I don't think scripture gives you that 
demons are um, the offspring of women and angels, I don't think it gives you that. I think that that comes from somewhere else. Whether it's true or not, I, I'm, I'm hesitant, <laughs> but it's not coming from scripture. So I, I, wouldn't, I would certainly not make it a dogmatic Christian thing. I would be like, here's my conjecture on this. Number nine, um, anonymous question. Can I be a truth seeker and a good Christian? Is it possible to love the truth more than God, considering that Jesus is the truth? Okay, so this is a great, fantastic question. Uh, some are going to be irritated by it, <laughs> hearing it, but I, I'm not. Um, so a truth seeker and a good Christian. Um, you can't be a good Christian without being a truth seeker. But there's pro. I'm just going to guess. Forgive me if I get this wrong. It's not intentional. Don't remember. I, I'm not. I don't know you, so I'm not trying to assume things about you. I'm trying to guess things about what comes behind the question. There may be some assumptions in the background of this question, which are the idea that being a truth seeker is going to potentially cause conflict with your Christian commitments. Um, let me say, the conflict ultimately is going to be that I am not that great of a truth seeker. Right? We, we tend to overestimate our ability to, to seek truth. And sometimes when you know just a little bit more than other people on a topic, you feel like you understand the topic better than you do, merely because you're more knowledgeable than everyone you talk to. But I like what Paul says when he says, I don't understand anything as I ought. Right? Let's, 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 take, let's think about this for a moment, that a truth seeker should, before they evaluate all this other evidence, they should also consider the lack in their own ability to evaluate evidence. So, um, uh, I wonder if I could find this text where he says this. Um, no, I, um, I can't remember where it is. I'm not probably going to be able to find it. Um, oh man, Paul's, Paul's, uh, Man, maybe could someone help me in the in the live chat? Help me find the verse because I'm just not. I'm just. I'm. I'm. I'm just a horrible Bible thinker. Um, <laughs> but I don't measure people on their ability to recall locations in the Bible, and people should not measure themselves in such ways. This this causes many uh, many young Christians who are in Bible bees to greatly overestimate their spirituality. <laughs> um, but yeah, where does where Paul talks about not being, not understanding things as he should. Somebody help me in the live chat. It takes like a full minute probably for it to process through there. So I'm going to wait and come back to it. Um, yeah, 1 Corinthians. That helps except that, you know, that's a whole book. <laughs> so I've got to narrow it down. Um, yeah, Paul's just talking about his lack of his understanding and his knowledge. Um, man, I, I can't I can't think of it where it is. Okay, so the... Um, Okay, well, one person says 1 Corinthians 8, 2. I, I'd like us to look at this verse because if I can ground my answer to you here in Scripture. Ah, that's it. Perfect. Thank you very much, audience of one. I appreciate that. And by audience of one, you obviously meant me. I was your audience. Just, I'm kidding. Okay, so um, let me take us there. There is, okay, truth seeker, good agenda with dangers that come from lack of awareness at how good you are at it <laughs> and lack of awareness on the, 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 the danger of knowledge of, of at least thinking you know things. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 8.1. 
Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, but uh, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up. This is a danger where Paul wants to remind us of this, and, and, and he takes it personally himself as well, I believe, that your knowing things is a danger of you thinking you know more than you do, or thinking that what you know is the whole story, right? Like, I can objectively know, okay, so I see a car accident, and I objectively know it was that person's fault, it was not that person's fault. So I run up to the car accident, and I tell them, you're at fault, you're going to be in trouble, and all this other stuff. And what I don't know is like that it's like some teen girl who just got her driver's license and she's absolutely freaked out and um, she just went through some kind of really difficult issue in her life. And then, yes, the car accident's her fault, but I don't know the whole story, you know, and that's all I'm saying. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge, we feel like we know more than we do. And then we think I'm just a truth seeker, but we're really standing on half the information. That's the danger of truth seeking when it comes into conflict with Christian truth or with trusting in Christ, with trusting in God, where you think you're a truth seeker and so you withhold faith in the word of God because you have to be open to the possibility that it's definitely wrong and that every Christian is wrong and that Jesus isn't even real. That's not truth seeking. This is like a dangerous type of um, puffing up. So knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. If you know this in your truth seeking, if verse two is, is, is enshrined and like embedded in your mind, then you will have wisdom in truth seeking because you just have to know. I, you know, I, I know there's a question here. There's an issue there. I, I know there's things I don't know though. And that shouldn't make you agnostic in the sense of I have no conclusions because I'll never know anything that itself is is a is a place of sitting with um, lack of knowledge, like unhealthily, um, like the guy that gets to the intersection and never decides to turn left, right, or go straight because he doesn't want to make a wrong turn. <laughs> like, well, if we know you're wrong now, because <laughs> like, you went nowhere. Um, so yeah, th this is the thing that I'd recommend. Um, I see many people digging into apologetics and they think, okay, I just have to be committed to truth, committed to truth, committed to truth, committed to truth. Um, I'm going to recommend that once you know that Jesus is real, once you know that Christianity is true in the, at least the broad sense, you may be confused about certain doctrines. You might have questions about certain theology issues, but you know, Christianity is true in the broad sense. At that point, you need to rest your trust in Christ. It is not wise to withhold trust in the person of Christ because of theoretical possibilities that you feel you have to entertain until you die. It, it's relational. It's not just informational. And so I don't know if this helps. Um, is it possible to love the truth more than God? No, not in reality, but it's possible to idolize your own pursuit of truth in such a way that you make God subservient to your pursuit. Now, it's, it's not truth that's actually conflicting with God here. It's your pursuit, your imagined pursuit, where you're on a hero journey of seeking truth, and God is merely, he's merely like the uh, the window dressing attached to that. And, and it's like, wait a minute, no, 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 this is, yeah, that can be dangerous. I don't think truth itself can conflict with God. But you could be thinking you're conflicting with God uh, for what you think is true. Number 10, Upside Down Dreamer says, Mike, 
What do you think really happened during the long day in Joshua 10, during the battle between Israel and the armies of the five kings, when the sun stood still and the moon stopped? Um, so I don't know what really happened during that time. Um, I've read the passage and I've sat and like kind of like meditated through it and sort of like worked through it and tried to kind of have a theory and then lay it on top of the passage and see if it was consistent or not. Um, my, my best guess at the moment is that in Joshua 10, when it describes the events happening there, the sun standing still, the moon stopping, that it's using language of appearance. At least to the people, that's how it appeared. I don't, and I think this is safe to say this. I don't think we're, I'm not trying to like do revision. I think this fits the context of the text. When when Joshua looks and sees the sun standing still, I don't think he's he's saying, and I really want you all to know what I really mean here is that 93 million miles away, there is a gigantic ball of fire many times larger than Earth. And that thing, that thing, its relationship to the entire planet Earth is now fixed during this period of time. And later, it will begin to be apparently moving again. I don't think that Joshua was doing all that. There is some kind of appearance thing happening to them. Could it have been like... Uh, a localized illusion. Yes. Like God can, I don't see any reason why God couldn't do that. He's just, he's just demonstrating his power to them. Uh, that, that could be an explanation. Um, could it have been a, a, a global experience? Like the earth actually stopped rotating. Then people were like, well, then mountains would go flying and all this other stuff would happen, the tides and everything like that. And it's like, well, it's, it would be strange. <laughs> I know I don't think that's what happened, but it's possible. And what I want to say is this. It would be weird to push back against that by saying, well, if God did that miracle, it would cause these natural disasters. <laughs> like, uh, like the context is if God did this miracle, it would cause natural, dis like nature would react this way to such a miracle. You don't know how nature reacts to miracles. God, God is the one controlling how nature is reacting at that moment. So I, I think that that's a weird objection. Yeah. So I, I lean towards language of appearance. But um, but either way, this would be a, a miracle. And someone would say, well, why wasn't it recorded in other in other uh, histories and other places? Well, we don't have a lot of data from back then in the first place. But that could be evidence that it was that it was a localized appearance thing. That's possible. Joshua Bolton has a question: Why was the old covenant law set up in which atonement was achieved via animal sacrifice, as we see Abraham was atoned for by his faith in the promise? to come of what was Jesus dimly perceived. Okay, so for those who want to be up on the same page here is Joshua. Um, Abraham, he's, he, you know, he's, according to Joshua, he's atoned for a certain way. And then in the law, they're atoned for a different way. So let me first say, um, I don't know if the term atoned for should be applied to Abraham. So Abraham, it says in Genesis that he was counted righteous. I don't know of a scripture that says that Abraham was atoned for. Atoning is a little different. See, atoning implies like the sin was dealt with. God overcame uh, and fixed his, washed him of his sins, like judicially, and brought him into right relationship with God that d dealt with the wrath that was against him and all that. Um, it doesn't say that, right? Um, Let me uh, just go to the text that you're thinking about Abraham here. And, and, and if I couch it this way and it's not about atonement, 
then perhaps it will it will stand out as being about um, about something else. How Abraham was actually righteous, which is different. So Genesis fifteen six, God makes a promise to Abraham about his future, about his offspring, which by the way is going to include Jesus embedded in that promise. So this is like in a sense, it's like a. a uh, in utero gospel message, <laughs> kind of like that, um, undeveloped, but it's embedded in here. And then in verse six, it says, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham believes God and God accounts, counts, what counts belief as righteousness. So Abraham was made righteous by faith. This is what Paul talks about in Romans four. It's like a really important theological point that a lot of people just miss. That's super beautiful and wonderful and harmonizing the the entire gospel message through scripture. But I wouldn't say Abraham was then atoned for that way. I think that Abraham was actually, we don't see how he's atoned for in the Old Testament. I think that he's, he's he believes and he's counted righteous and then he's atoned for by Jesus on the cross. That's the atonement for Abraham. Now the next question, the next part of your question is this. Now that I, I think I've, hopefully I've separated those two conceptually. Abraham's not doing an atonement thing. He's just doing a faith righteousness thing. Um, the question is then, why is the law set up with animal sacrifice bringing atonement? And I think that the examples here, there's a, there's a number of good reasons. And as I'm going to be studying in a couple months, I'll start my book of Hebrews study. We're going to get into tons of detail on this very specific stuff. Um, looking forward to that. But a few of the points are this. Um, there's animals are required to, um, to achieve atonement. That atonement is temporary. These are problems with that covenant, right? The atonement is temporary. That is, you have to continually sacrifice more and more animals. The atonement is limited in that it can only pay for certain sins and certain issues and cover certain things, not all things. And um, and then the people constantly fall short. They're, they're, this is all part of a covenant they continually break. And so they end up just being condemned, condemned, condemned. And the atonement also involves some pretty rough things like having to bring an animal, sacrifice it, and it dies in your place. So that's that's hard and, and it hurts to think about these animals being sacrificed. And I think it's supposed to. I don't think it's supposed to be like, we don't care about those animals. I think you're supposed to care because you're supposed to care about Jesus because ultimately it all represents Christ. Jesus comes and he doesn't just do what that did. He does what that couldn't do. So the, the atonement is there to show, hey, you fall short and there is these, these sort of like concepts in place in the culture of the Jews that Jesus will take and fulfill, that he'll use to show what, he's, what his purpose is. So he takes the idea of animal sacrifice and he's like, yes, it'll ultimately be a massive sacrifice I'm making. The animals in your place, well, I'm going to go in your place and die for your sins. But, but the animals, they, they, wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't cleanse you permanently. They had to keep sacrificing over and over again. And Jesus comes and he dies once and for all sin, he never dies again because he is permanently dealt with our salvation so that we're secure in Christ. We're not losing it and gaining it, losing it, gaining it. Um, and then the animal only covered certain sins, certain sins, and many people couldn't even find any covering through the law. Jesus comes, he covers all sin. And so you see how Jesus is seen as a fulfillment, but also as better. And he is the one, I would say, who atoned for Abraham and the one who ultimately atoned for anybody who was even under the law, who was just trusting in Christ as they, did, they found the law insufficient to bring them peace, Christ ultimately brought them peace. Let's go to number 12. This is Jasmine Gage. Can I keep listening to Bethel's music given the intent, as far as I understand, to invoke emotional responses? I want to avoid the idol of emotional highs, but still see value in their music. 
Jasmine, let me share with you my thoughts on this. Uh, my short answer is yes, you can. But right? <laughs> um, but I, I would encourage you to do this with wisdom. So one of the things with Bethel is there's there's concern that a lot of us would have with the um, some of the strange teachings that have gone on in the church and the response to those teachings. It's it's when Bethel when when Bethel finally does speak out about the weird teachings, they don't really deal with it fairly and openly. It's more like they're just doing. To be honest, it feels like they're doing damage control. And they're just kind of like trying to create space so people will stop arguing about it and not re really actually create a lot of clarity. I think there's a problem there. Bethel's music is used as a bridge to promote that teaching. That's the concern with the music that I have for the most part. It's it's used as a bridge, right, to, to, to increase the teaching. I mean, think of Hillsong. Hillsong became famous and then finally their teachers widely known and... and, and people listening to them on the back of the music that was super popular and Bethel's doing the same thing so that's a concern but does that mean the music itself like that that's an implication the music itself is all bad and the answer I have here is absolutely not some of the Bethel songs you guys are going to not be happy with me for saying this some of you aren't <laughs> um, but if you just go and read the lyrics of the Bethel songs some of them are great fantastic I'm like that's a really good song and do you have to like find the guy that wrote it or the label that it's carried on and then say, I can't enjoy this, I can't use this because of its associations? And that's where I'm going to say, I'm not going to put that requirement on the body of Christ around the world, okay? If you have reasons why you think you should do that, go ahead. And if you don't, that's up to you. Like, I'm not going to make that decision for everybody. I'm going to be a more libertarian on that, <laughs> on that issue. Um, some of the guys in Bethel... They, Bethel allows, listen to this, Bethel allows for a lot of theological disagreement within their camp, which means that there's going to be people who have theology a lot more like mine than they do like Bill Johnson's, and they're still in the Bethel camp because as long as they don't make waves, nobody cares. That's just the way they are. And I'm going to realize that and say, I'm not going to cut off every believer in that camp or associated with that record label, that, that music label, um, because of the mere association. Instead, I'm going to let it be a little more complicated and say, yeah, if you want to take it song per song, go for it. Now, some of the songs um, are weird um, and that needs to be acknowledged and, and dealt with, but others are just wonderful. There's a variety there. If the association with Bethel bothers you, don't use their music. If you feel like you can overcome it, fine. If you want to put your music in front of others, if you want to use it for worship in your church, now you have to ask another question. Not how it affects me, not am I okay with it, how is it affecting my congregation? How is it affecting my people? What impact is it having on them? Is our, If I play Bethel songs, is, am I creating a bridge for my my church people, my, my, my body and brothers and sisters that are here, a bridge for them to the teachings that I have problems with? And if the answer is yes, then you shouldn't do it. If, you know, am, am I bringing these songs to them where I know that my body is divided on Bethel and they're just going to argue and bicker about the worship songs? Well, then don't do it. Like, why would why would I create these problems? for my local fellowship instead of worship being a pure and wonderful time. Those are some of my thoughts on that, Jasmine. I hope they help. Number 13, Michael Mole says, Hi, Pastor Mike. In John 21, it is written that Peter caught 153 large fish, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Is there a message or a theme John was conveying here? Michael, there has been a lot of ink spilt from people trying to like figure out why there were 153 fish um, in John 21. Um, now you didn't specifically, you know, highlight the number, but you did mention it, so I'll just I'll just mention this. Uh, we'll go to the passage here. Um, 
So this is this is the last appearance in the Gospel of John, and it, and the theme is let's back up and just give you the theme. The theme is the restoration of Peter ultimately, right? Peter has denied Christ. Um, he weeps bitterly. He didn't just flee like the other disciples. He openly denied Jesus. That is such a huge deal. It is such a huge deal. So after Christ's resurrection, he is getting reinstated. Mark hints at this when when the angels like go tell the disciples and Peter. Right, that, that he's risen, that he's going to appear, and you'll see him. And so, like, and Peter, like, there's, like, this sense in which Peter's, like, being restored, I think. Um, so, John 21, uh, let me just read the whole passage. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, <coughs> pardon me, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. This is similar to an experience they had earlier when they first met Jesus, uh, or at least when they were first called. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Again, this is like a mirror of what they went through before. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off, which is why they probably didn't recognize Jesus. Uh, when they got out of, on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. And here's the, the part you brought up. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Okay. Let me just do, go big picture first. Then we'll come back to the 153 fish. Big picture. This is just like when they were called before. It's almost as though... This is hearkening back to their first calling so that Jesus can affirm, yes, I'm restoring you. Yes, I'm calling you. The conversation that, they're, that they also have after this moment, um, after they finish breakfast, is where Jesus has like this restoration moment with Peter. Simon, do you love me? And he tells him like, feed my lambs. He goes, do you love me? And then he tells him, uh, you, you, know, you know, Lord, I love you. Tend my sheep. Do you love me? And then he says, again, he says, feed my sheep. So... <clears throat> Simon's being called again and being restored. Okay, there's other connotations here. So Jesus, when he called them, he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And initially when he called them, he used the, the big catch of fish as a way of suggesting a few things. A, God can provide your needs. B, there's going to be a big harvest of souls in your ministry, Peter. Now when he does it again, it's affirming, especially the second one. There's going to be a bit, you have a big ministry ahead of you, Peter. You feel like you've blown it. You feel like it's, you know, you're ashamed. I'm restoring you. I'm calling you. I'm using you. That, that, that's what I take that to be. <clears throat> Some have said the 153 fish, though, are representative of, since they're, they seem to be representative of people coming to Christ, right? Not only God's provision, he can take care of your needs, but also you're going to have a harvest. You're going to be fishers of men. <clears throat> that 153 fish represents the 153 nations in the world. Now, I really liked this. I thought this was great. First time I heard it. Here's a problem. Um, 
there aren't 153 nations in the world and the nations in the world change so frequently that it's difficult to give you a number that's going to last any length of time. You know, if I tell you how many nations there are today, a year from now, it might be a different number. <laughs> so that's a little bit of a challenge. Um, and it's weird to think that it was talking about nations that none of them knew of at the time, uh, in, which would be included in that number as well. <clears throat> Others try to do other things with 153. I personally don't know, except to say it was a very large number of fish. They remembered it. There may be a numerical thing going on there, but I have not yet been convinced of what it is. Yeah, there's my uh, my thoughts. Number 14, MGYL says, Pastor Mike, how do I go about leaving my church? Oh, that's rough stuff, man. Uh, do I talk to my leaders? Do I have to explain why? What do I need to do to make sure that I do it the right way? Um, okay, in my view, life is really complicated. <laughs> and I don't have a pat answer for you. Um, <clears throat> let me give you a few things that you might be able to apply in your situation. If you're leaving your church because of serious heresy in your church, I'm much more inclined to say, go talk to somebody about it. Go deal with it in detail. Try to reform, um, sit down with the, the, the thought leaders in your church and, you know, prepare walk them through scripture and have <clears throat> have yourself ready to have those discussions if it's real heresy that's being taught if it's other things that aren't heresy but maybe they have to do with the health of the church then the question i have is um can my leaders hear me some leaders and, and this is a message for all of us in leadership all of us anybody who has any leadership position in someone else's life is that you will you will teach people over the years whether they can talk to you or not by whether you'll receive it when they have something they don't agree with you on. Now, it's already very intimidating for people to talk to leaders when they don't agree. Most often, they'll, I'm not trying to complain about people, guys. This, this is, I think, just a human nature thing we should be aware of. Most often, if someone disagrees with you as a leader, they won't talk to you about it ever. They will probably just talk to other people about you. <laughs> and that's, that's more often what happens. Um, this can create paranoid leaders, and we shouldn't go down that road. We should just ignore it and move on. And don't worry about it. Like Ecclesiastes, I think it's Ecclesiastes says, like, don't always listen into what you, if you're, what your servant says about you. <laughs> Not that they're your servants. I'm saying there's a principle that we're learning from the text there about um, people react negatively and complaining to those who are in leadership in general. And those in leadership need to not obsess about that and just let it go. That's just wisdom. But... If you react really harshly when people do correct you as a leader, you will train them to never correct you. And I don't blame them. Okay, look, if, if your leader um, just attacks you personally when you tell them, hey, I think this is wrong, and they don't listen, and they won't hear you, and there's no humility, and there's just uh, self-defense and arrogance and pride, it's understandable that as you're leaving the church, you're like, do I really want to tell them all this stuff? Like, I understand that. And I don't know the right answer. I just understand the dilemma. I understand the dilemma. Um, if it's discussions you've... Now, another question to ask is, is it discussions I've already had? Have I already gone down the road with this person? Like, we've already talked about this. We've talked about it and talked about it. And now it's just time where I realize it's time for me to go. Then then I don't know that you have that much to talk about because there's another concern. Sometimes like you, you want to... You don't just want to leave with knowledge of why you left in the wake. Sometimes you want to leave and preserve as much brotherhood as possible. And that's another overarching concern that I understand. I, oh yeah, I want to have as much brotherhood as I can have as I leave. And if I leave and all I leave them with is a list of the reasons I'm leaving on things that I think 
are reason enough that I'm going to go somewhere else, but but there's not like rank heresy and, and it's things where I don't think that it'll be fixed. I don't think anyone's going to listen to me on this stuff. I don't think they'll hear me. Maybe I'll just try and be as gentle as possible. And I think there's a case for that. Okay, so God give you wisdom. If it's rank heresy, I think it should be confronted. If the pastor and the staff and those are teachable and there are significant issues that are going to continue to plague the church, you may be able to help them by telling them your reasons. If you've already been down that road many times, you've already had these discussions, then it may be time to stop having them and to try to just leave as graciously as possible. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, it's complicated. And I, my, uh, my heart goes out to you guys. And anybody who's thinking about leaving a church, pray, pray, pray. Make sure there's no bitterness in your heart. You just have wise and good reasons why you're leaving from one, you know, gathering of believers to a different one. Um, and uh, there are times when that can be a good thing to do, but I just say be very slow to do it. Number 15, Jay Towels says, Hi, Pastor Mike. Where did all the people that Jesus and the disciples raised from the dead go while they were dead? I would hate to think they were in paradise somewhere, then had to come back. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I don't know. <laughs> um, what I tend to think, my current thoughts, and I hold this slightly loosely, but I do hold it. Like, I think this is the case, but I, I could see, you know, space for me to change my mind on this at some point if, if I was persuaded by scripture. Um, so my current thought is that when somebody dies, they, um, now whether this happens instantaneously or over a period of time or whatever, right? But, it, but they go down to basically one of two locations. One is a place of comfort, which the Bible calls, at least, you know, King James style, Abraham's bosom, or let me, let me put this in modern, more modern terms, Abraham's comforts, as in Abraham had a, uh, was gathered into a good location of waiting on the ultimate, you know, future resurrection and deliverance. And you'll be gathered to the same place. That's the idea of Abraham's bosom. And the other one <clears throat> referred to like as Hades, not hell, different terms, different meanings, which is like a place of discomfort awaiting final judgment. And um, I tend to think that that's, that's the case. And the question is how soon after someone dies are they assigned to one of these locations? I don't know the answer to that question. Um, Jewish tradition in the first century, and I'm not, do not put this on scripture, but it's a weird, interesting thing I learned as I was studying recently. Jewish tradition held that um, a spirit, person's spirit would be around the body for three days until uh, they, uh, they finally left. Interesting, huh? Um, don't put that on scripture. There's all kinds of weird things Jews believed during the time of Jesus. Everybody believed. Doesn't mean that that's what scripture is teaching. So yeah, where did the people that Jesus and disciples raised from the dead go while they were dead? Well, the little girl that was raised, um, she was dead very briefly, it seems. So who knows? Maybe nowhere. <laughs> um, others, Lazarus, Lazarus was dead for four days. So it would seem that he would have had some kind of afterlife experience. Would he have remembered it afterwards? I, I wish we had an account of him talking about it. Good question. I don't know. I don't know, Jay towels that's something interesting maybe one day i'll know it better elo says a popular internet ministry says jesus never said we need to ask for forgiveness and the bible doesn't mention it is that true they also say it's impossible for a christian to take the mark of the beast is that true okay let me start with the mark of the beast question 
I think it's irrelevant. Um, and here's the reason why. If a Christian who, who you think is a Christian, who looks like a Christian, who seems to act like a Christian, if they, on a futurist perspective and you're in the tribulation, if they take the mark of the beast, you're just going to turn and say, if you hold this view, well, then they weren't Christians. But it's not actually going to affect the real world in any way. You're just going to be assigning whether they were or were not a real Christian based on whether they take the mark. So you get what I mean? Is I'm, I'm like, I don't see how this helps anything. Th this is like the, dis the discussion of once saved, always saved. Like someone who looked like a Christian, act like a Christian, talk like a Christian, and then they apostatize. They, 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 um, they deconvert. They leave the faith. They reject Jesus. And then people on the internet go on the comment section, you were never really a Christian. And I'm like, what's your point? <laughs> All you're doing is analyzing their past, and all they hear you saying is, I, I, I'm not sincere, I was lying, I'm a liar, and, and, I'm, and I'm like, this is not the best way to talk to people, is trying to figure out whether they were really a Christian or not. Just assume that as far as they know they were sincere, and talk to them in that way, and don't worry about the details of what was going on inside their actual spirit that you don't see, and you can't, you can't evaluate. So, so the, I, I consider this in that realm. Now, it may be that someone's saying this because they want Christians to feel comfortable. You won't, don't worry, you won't take the mark of the beast because you're a true Christian. But that does also depend on you being a true Christian, which is the thing that um, we have to assume at that point. So I, I don't know. It just seems like a, a pointless thing to talk about. The other issue is um, <clears throat> the popular internet ministry says Jesus never said we have to ask for forgiveness. <clears throat> and the Bible doesn't mention that. Uh, no, that's not true. Um, that's utterly foolish like now maybe there's more context and they're like you don't have to ask for forgiveness each time you sin in order to be forgiven like in order to have salvation but there's a difference between being saved and just having a healthy relationship with god so i do think we should continually be seeking to like be restored if we have if we backslidden if we failed in some way if we sinned that we should be seeking to do that um and and the bible speaks of this Right. Um, let me let me just take you to a passage. You will be familiar with this passage. You may have read it before, but uh, we'll be looking at it again. Um, <clears throat> Matthew chapter six, verse five, and when you pray. Don't be like the hypocrites and all this other stuff. But then Jesus gives us instruction on how to pray. Verse 9. <clears throat> pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Which implies what? That this could be a daily prayer. This is a kind of either, either the thing you pray or the way you pray on a regular basis. That's an important point I'd like to make. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is a regular prayer, just like you need food daily, <laughs> you give us this day our daily bread. That's a regular, you could pray this every day or something like it. You could be, you could, you could look at it as <clears throat> repeat these words, or you could also, which is fine. Or you could also just consider these things in, you know, in the Lord's prayer, um, as elements of prayer, right? Start with worship of who God is, recognizing who he was of setting his kingdom first in your prayers. Like ultimately, God, I want your will to be done. Not mine. This is the main goal of my prayers, not just to get you to answer my requests. And then I'm depending on you for my daily needs and for my forgiveness, right? And I recognize that I'm in a constant battle with sin. And so I want to be forgiven. I want to be led by you. And then he adds this. 
if you forgive others, your heavenly father will forgive you. If you don't, he won't. This is a daunting passage, but to act like it just doesn't occur in the passage of scripture at all would be weird. So internet ministry, whatever it is, um, it, it sounds like they're weird. <laughs> There's my conclusion. Let's go to the cat cam. This is my cat, Moxie. And she's sleeping as usual. Yeah. She, uh, yeah, she's just 93% fur. And we have question number 17. Steve Perry says, if the long ending of Mark is not original or written by Mark, how is keeping it in the Bible not diluting the word of God and cheapening the meaning of scripture? Steve, I think that you have an assumption that I don't have. Maybe you could be right. I, I, I don't think you're right, though. Um, so here's, here's my answer. The assumption seems to be that um, stuff should only be in scripture as, as a book of the Bible if it was written by a single author. Now, the easiest pushback against this would be like the book of Psalms, which we know was written by multiple authors. Like nobody doubts this in any way, shape, or form. It even gives attribution to different authors in the text of the book of Psalms. So you know it was written by different authors. Uh, we have like Deuteronomy. Where, like, well, Moses wrote Deuteronomy. Well, like what he's, I think it's Deuteronomy. Where he's, or is it Numbers? Where he's dead at the end. <laughs> You're like, well, you obviously didn't write that part. But nobody's like, well, cut that part out. Somebody else wrote that. Perhaps Joshua did, right? We don't have to cut it out. Like this was written by somebody else, but it was given ultimately by God and received by the community. So what I'm suggesting is that rule of um, we can only have in scripture works that are wholly pinned by one author. Like I just don't have that rule. Instead, I think that the Bible just kind of happened to the church. Like we just look at it and we go, well, this is just what God gave us. I don't think the church decided this book's in, that book's out. I think what they looked around and said, look, this is what we've received. Like this is just what happened. We're just going to acknowledge what God has done. And um, I think that the longer ending of Mark has very early and wide attestation and it spreads and is received so universally in the church that I'm suggesting that might be evidence that it's just what God did. That even if it was not originally part of Mark, it's what God intended to have there at that, at that spot. And so um, that to me doesn't cause a problem. It doesn't cheapen the meaning of scripture. So... Yeah, that would be, that'd be my thoughts on that. <clears throat> Armand Esterhuizen. Esther, boy, I, I have no idea, Armand, how to pronounce your last name. Esterhuizen? Huizen? <clears throat> we'll go with Esterhuizen. Why can't I trust Christ for complete forgiveness, even though I fully believe every word in the Bible? Why won't my heart allow me to enter salvation? Why doesn't God seem to want to help me? Armand, you're going through it, man. Um, please please, sir, reach out to a godly believer who is wise, who you can sit down with, who cares about you or find one that would make them care about you and sit down with them and pray with them and talk to them about this thing. I think that you really need personal, thoughtful, someone to listen to you, someone to hear what's going on with you know your thought process and walk you through this stuff. I can tell you, having done a lot of counseling, that if I hear this, the first thing I do is I sit and I ask you questions for like an hour and a half just to understand you. And then I give you counsel. That's not possible. I couldn't imagine 20 questions and each one I spent an hour and a half on. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> but instead what I'll do is give you a few thoughts that I do hope will give you some direction. 
I noticed there's a, there's a, um, in your thought process, there's a progression. First, you start with, why can't I trust Christ for complete forgiveness, even though I fully believe every word in the Bible? This tells me that there is an intellectual aspect of belief and there's a psychological or emotional aspect. And these two seem to be in conflict. If I'm reading you correctly, you're saying intellectually, like, I think it's all true. I believe it's all true, but I don't feel like I'm fully forgiven. I, I don't feel fully satisfied emotionally, even though I think it's all true. Um, the second thing you say is, why won't my uh, why won't my heart allow me to enter salvation? Now, this is interesting because you, you, in your three questions you've asked, you step further and further away from yourself and your, your emotional issues. And I'm just going to point this out for your sake. So at first, it's a, it's a, I have a problem. I, I want to trust in Christ like his forgiveness, but I'm just not feeling emotionally satisfied that I am forgiven, that I'm really trusting. There's something not right there. Then I depersonalize myself. Why won't my heart, as though it's external to me, allow me to enter salvation? As though here I am wanting to enter salvation and then my heart has the ultimate veto power and it's not letting me. I think, Armand, I think you're confused here. And I think this is, to show your confusion, if you want salvation, how is that not your heart wanting salvation? Where is the part where your heart is something separate from you that's keeping you from trusting in Christ or something like that? I, I think there's some confusion going on here and I don't know the right answers for it, but I, I want you to recognize that you are struggling with conflicting emotions and thoughts and you're trying to process this and it's causing you to sort of like think strangely about some of these issues. The final step you take is the scary one. And the final step is why doesn't God seem to want to help me? That's your third question. I've taken my internal conflict and I've projected it to God. He doesn't want to help me. He must not care about me that much. Notice in your first question, you said, I fully believe every word in the Bible. But your later questions indicate that there isn't really clarity on that. God doesn't want to help me. Well, the Bible certainly teaches he does. So you're dealing with conflicting internal emotions and thoughts. And what I'm going to suggest is meet with somebody, talk with them. I'm not here. I'm not condemning you for these things. I just want you to have clarity and recognize you first, you, you see I have conflicting issues in myself. Then you depersonalize the part you don't like. Why won't my heart let me do that? Now I'm a victim of my heart and it's not like I'm actually the one who's conflicted. <laughs> it's like something is happening to me. And then you depersonalize it more. God doesn't want to help me. It's God's fault. And so, um, that is a concerning and scary process that you're going through there. Instead, you should say, honestly, you should be like the guy that comes to Jesus says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm going to recognize I've got issues. I've got struggles. I believe you. I think it's true, but I also struggle. And sometimes I feel like I don't believe. And, and I'm just going to be honest and say, Lord, this is me. I'm, I'm a bit of a mess, but I'm deciding my willpower is saying, I'm choosing to trust in you. Will you help me and meet me here, even though I'll continue to struggle? And do not think, Armand, do not think victory here is you feeling better. Victory here is you making right choices, not feeling better. I, I mean, I want you to feel better. But if you feel you're unsatisfied and unsettled until you feel better, you will probably never feel better. But if you <clears throat> come to the resolution that whether you feel better or not, you can navigate this in a way that glorifies God, it honors Christ, and you say, I know I have these thoughts and these thoughts. I'm choosing these ones and I'm going to trust in Christ. Lord, I believe. Help my own belief. And now I will move forward. 
but please meet with someone, pray with someone, talk to somebody and share this stuff with them. And thank you for opening up with me. Thank you for being willing to, to, to let me share with you because I know there's going to be others who go through the same thing as you. You're not alone. And then hopefully the counsel I've given them, given you will help them as well. So thank you for sharing. Number 19, Josiah Allen's wife says, if Jesus is God, then why do Paul and the gospels often speak of them separately? What is the significant significance about the phrase son of God being used for Jesus since it is used for others too. Um, okay, well, I'll take these two questions very separately. One is the issue of there's lots of verses where Jesus is, is we have like Jesus and then God in the sentence, but they're not the same. I mean, you know, God and Jesus, God and Jesus, like as opposed to God the Father and God the Son, which is how often Trinitarians will phrase it. Okay, so I, I think that if we back up and we look at the Jewish context of the scriptures, this might make more sense. In the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the words of Jesus and in the Jewish mind, right, God is Father. And when they say, uh, typically when they say God, they're usually referring to the Father, or at least often referring to the Father. Uh, Jesus does this too. Sometimes he does it by just saying God, and he's referring to the Father. Other times, he'll say the Father, right? Now, the New Testament comes into this monotheistic environment where there's only one God, and God is the Father, but wants to make it clear that Jesus is God, but that he's not the Father. So how, does he, how do they handle this? And one of the ways they handle this is by referring to Jesus as Lord, Jesus as the Son of God, to create the distinction between the Father and the Son, right? The Son of God term is understood in the, in the first century in the early church as Jesus' deity. He's God. He's not like a Greco-Roman Son of God thing. He's not an angel, book of Hebrews, right? No, no, he's the Son of God in the context of him being God, um, but not being the Father. And so if you realize that, uh, let me put it this way. This might help even more. Um, the New Testament, if it did it the way that maybe you would want it to or first your 21st century Christians would want it to, which is, oh, always be like <clears throat> calling Jesus God over and over and over, just all the time. Like it does it occasionally. But and, and that's enough, by the way, but but it doesn't do it all the time. But if it did it all the time in the first century Jewish context, it would have created modalism, right? Or some kind of Unitarian theology. It would have created a belief that the father and the son were not distinct. They were just simply the same. So in order to teach us that there's one God in three persons, we have the, the terminology of the New Testament. Uh, God, usually referring to the Father, sometimes referring to the Son, sometimes referring to the Holy Spirit, but usually the Father, and then the Son of God, the, the Lord, the Holy Spirit, referring to the other persons of the Trinity. Um, the other statement you had in here... Um, The Son of God is used for others, not just for Jesus. Yeah, yeah, but these are different contexts. So we're talking about like books written like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years apart by different authors, right? In, even in the Bible. So Son of God in Job is not the way Son of God is used in the New Testament, right? So we, we just look at these terms and see them in their context. Um, I hope that helps. Why do they speak of them separately? To, to make sure we don't think the Father and the Son are the same person. Um, but yet there are times where the Bible just straight up calls Jesus God. So that's the doctrine of the Trinity being pushed upon us. Number 20, Steve Costin has a question and he says, 
When we pray, how do we hear God's reply? How do we hear God's reply? How can someone differentiate the voice of God? When I pray, I feel like it's just me. How can I make decisions if I don't know what God wants me to do? Okay, Steve, I have a rule. And here's my, here's my, let me give you an analogy from my dream life as a kid. I was one of those people who would wake up, uh, like sort of wake up in a dream. Like I'd be dreaming, but I'd become aware that I was dreaming. And <clears throat> there's, um, and of course, you know, if you do become aware of your dreaming, you, you immediately start to fly. That was always the goal. Try to fly. Well, maybe you th- I'm going to mute the mic while I cough just for a second. Problem solved. Um, so um, in my dreams, I sometimes would have a dilemma. I'd be dreaming and I'd be thinking, is this a dream or is this real? And I'd be trying to figure it out while I was dreaming. Now, over time, I started to realize something. And the thing I realized was when I'm awake, I never ask this question. <laughs> and so I, I started to come up with this rule for myself. Like I was like, I don't know, like 10 year old kid. And my rule was, I would think about things. I was a weird kid. <clears throat> my rule was, if I think, am I dreaming? I'm dreaming. Because when I'm awake, I never think that. Now, I'm going to take this rule and I want to apply it a little bit to the question of hearing God's voice. And my, my answer is this. If you think, I wonder if that's the Lord, then I think you're better off treating it as though it is not. That doesn't mean it's evil. That doesn't mean it's a bad idea even. I think you just shouldn't treat it as though it's a divine command. You should be like, I don't know. Maybe, could be, could be not. Um, you should assign more doubt to that moment. And the moment where you're like, no, this is definitely the Lord. I'm, I'm really convinced this is God speaking to me. I have good reason to think so. That that's when you can run with that. Now, this is annoying because it means that for a lot of people who think that God is leading them all the time, every little step, like, I'm going to bring an extra napkin with me to lunch because I don't know, I feel like I, I just had a random thought to bring an extra napkin and that's, that's probably the Lord. That may be the Lord. That's exciting, but it also makes you weird because I don't think that God's telling you to bring an extra napkin to lunch. I think that what you're doing is you're coming up with ideas and thinking maybe God's guiding that, maybe God's guiding that, but this, this makes you an unstable person to be around. I'm just going to be frank, right? The people who are depending on you to make decisions that impact their lives, they deserve something a little more careful than that. And I never see people in the Bible saying, like, you know, God speaks to Abraham. God God communicates to something. He lays something on someone's heart. You never see them going, I'm like 30% sure this is the Lord right now. So I'm going to go ahead and try. We'll see what, like, you just don't see that. Like, how about we just stop this? Maybe this is God thing. And we go like this instead. Your final question was this. How can I make decisions if I don't know what God wants of me? My thought is this is human life. This is the Christian life. You constantly make decisions, not knowing what God wants you to do, but knowing how God wants you to live. He wants you to love others and put their needs above your own. He wants you to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. These are principles you can apply into the decisions you make. You know that he's given gifts into the body and that we should be exercising them for the benefit of others. So how do you make decisions? Like, should I move over here or not? Well, what impact is it going to have on you, on your family, on those around you, on the ministry opportunities that you have to serve God? What impact will it have on the future and how you can be a, a, a helpful and positive and godly impact on those around you? These are questions you can ask. The majority of our decisions as Christians 
are you not knowing what God wants you to do, but often knowing how God wants you to live. And you can make decisions based on that. And I think that that raises up mature believers who may not be as excited because they don't feel like God's leading every moment of their life, every directed decision, but who are, who are better people, right? More godly people because they're not just being guided. They're, they're learning to make choices. They're learning to be making wise decisions. Now, to give you an, an, an illustration, think about an employee. If you're a boss and you have an employee and the employee wants you to make every single decision for them. That's annoying, but it's not just that it's annoying. It's that it's incompetent. <laughs> so so um, it's an extreme, okay? But if you want, if I want, and, and I do, I kind of do want God to guide me every single little step of the way um, with specific, clear direction. But if, if you want that, there's a problem there th that leads to your own incompetence as a human in, in that you're not able to make good choices, take the data and just go for it and realize that things may or may not all pan out perfectly, but you're serving the Lord to the best of your ability. You're making the best choices you can and you're seeking to honor him. So the book of Proverbs is written because... People don't always get led by the Spirit in every decision they make. On the other hand, I am absolutely open to and praying for God to lead my decisions. But there's times where I decide to do things. Like when I decide to do the Mark <clears throat> the Mark series, I want the Lord to like just tell me, Mike, this is the book you'll do next. I didn't have some sort of clear direction from God. I thought, I'm going to do the Gospel of Mark, right? Because I want groundwork theology like, you know, Christianity 101 theology in my teaching to be out there to impact people in basic stuff. I also think the, that the gospel of Mark of the gospels is the most attacked. Well, Mark and John kind of split the two, but it's one of the most attacked when it comes to apologetics. And I'm going to do a defense of it. And I had some other reasons why I, you know, I'm looking through Mark and I think this is a good idea. I made a decision that I thought was a good idea. I think God allows that. I think God likes that uh, when we do those things. But be open. Pray for the Lord to guide and direct your steps. But if you're not sure, just 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 say, I don't know. I'm not sure. I feel like maybe the Lord's telling me this. But since that's a maybe, I'm not going to treat it like it's a command from God. I'm going to make a decision based upon what seems what seems to be the best thing. I think that that's good, good stuff. Um, this last bonus comment comes in from Melinda Demers, who says, Moxie heightens the coziness of these sessions. Doesn't she, though? Doesn't she, though? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she sure does. Yep. Well, that's it for 20 questions. I do not have a video coming for you guys Monday. I don't have much uh, planned. Well, I, I, I'll put up a video. It won't be... Um, it won't be a, uh, a live stream. I'll, I'll have a video I upload for you guys Monday. Um, other than that, thank you for joining me. Please give consideration to the things I've shared today. Um, if you have thoughts, please share them. You're welcome to share them in the comments as well. And if you got nothing else to do, can I encourage you to go to BibleThinker.org because the website has been revamped and redone and we have search functions on there. That's actually one of the best things about it is the, uh, is the search functions. Let me just show it to you. BibleThinker.org, <clears throat> if you go to the website, everything's free. There's no ads even on the site. Um, and you can have one of two different search functions here. One is the teaching video search where you search for whole videos. The next one is search now. This is a clip search. I just clicked it so it'll load up. 
This allows you to search for things like say, um, what were we talking about earlier? Like, let's say you had questions about Abraham. We mentioned Abraham. This not only gives you <laughs> videos where I've talked about it, but it gives you like say clips taking you to exact moments where I've talked about an issue. So here's, you know, at uh, 25 minutes, 49 seconds into the text or into the video, I answered a specific question about Abraham and you can, you could find all that stuff, navigate this. This is because of a bunch of volunteers that have helped our um, Bible thinker website to be improved and stuff and things and whatnot and stuff. And I'm looking for a button. There it is. All right. <laughs> all right, y'all. Thank you so much. God bless you. Keep your eyes on Jesus and continue growing in wisdom, learning to think biblically about everything so that you can make good choices in your life.